I'm Andrew Faust, here with Permaculture Perspectives. And today, I'm going to share some different readings. And I'm going to start with a piece from one of my favorite selections in Eastern mysticism. This book is entitled, The Secret of the Golden Flower. The Classic Chinese Book of Life. One of my favorite translators, Thomas Cleary. A little bit of description in this book. It's a classic meditation manual dedicated to attaining enlightenment in spare verses rich with mystery and profound wisdom. The text distills the best of two traditions, blending the bold insight and power of Chan, early Zen, Buddhism, with the natural mysticism of Taoism. Drawing on the teachings and texts of ancient masters, it also allows contemporary readers to access an age-old method of attaining true knowledge and aligning with the energies of existence. And I'm going to share with you passage number 10, The Light of Essence and the Light of Consciousness. The method of turning the light around basically is to be carried on whether walking, standing, sitting, or reclining. It is only essential that you yourself find the open of potential. Previously, I quoted the saying, Light arises in the empty room. This light is not luminous, but there is an explanation of this as an evidence of efficacy in the beginning before one has seen the light. If you see it as light and fix your attention on it, then you fall into ideational consciousness, which is not the light of essence. Now, when the mind forms a thought, this thought is the present mind. This mind is light. It is medicine. Whenever people look at things, when they perceive them spontaneously, all at once, without discriminating, this is the light of essence. It is like a mirror, reflecting, without intending to do so. In a moment, it becomes the light of consciousness, through discrimination. When there is an image in a mirror, there is no more mirroring. When there is consciousness in the light, then what light is there anymore? At first, when the light of essence turns into thought, then it is consciousness. When consciousness arises, the light is obscured and cannot be found. It is not that there is no light, but that the light has become consciousness. This is what is meant by the saying of the Yellow Emperor. When sound moves, it does not produce sound. It produces echoes. The Secret of the Golden Flower
I shared that passage with you because it highlights a viewpoint that we will also find key to pursuing good permaculture design. And I would characterize this insight in terms that we will also find reflected in the materials of Masanobu Fukuoka. In his book, I was just reading The Natural Way of Farming. Fukuoka in The Natural Way of Farming says very clearly, don't look for causal relationships in natural processes. There is a synergy of interaction between the parts of the puzzle that adds up to a greater phenomenon than simply the sum of those parts. And we hear in this passage a pointing to the direction of earliness, the inception, the awareness that exists before we begin to name things. And it's that awareness that when we're thinking about how do we really tune into what it means to do good design, to be a good human being in the world. And what we'll find is that patience, listening, paying attention, cultivating non-discriminatory, non-attachment to preconceived ideologies is the key to starting out from a place that is not prejudice, that is not going to miss the point of the process by being obsessed with preconceived notions and fitting the world into them. This world is a complex mystical phenomenon that requires that we slow down, pay attention, and don't presume that language can apprehend the essence of existence. So I'm going to share with you another reading now. This is from one of my favorite collections of essays. It's actually entitled Opinions, in the subtitle, by Kurt Vonnegut Jr. Wampeters, Foma, and Granfaloons. And here we're reading from an address that he gave to the American Physical Society. While I was working at General Electric, long after the Second World War, the older scientists were generally serene, but the younger ones were frequently upset. The younger ones were eager to discuss the question as to whether the atomic bomb, for instance, was a sin or not. David Lilienthal, the first chairman of the Atomic Energy Commission, said he was going to resign his job in order to speak freely, and scientists at General Electric banded together to ask Lilienthal to come to Schenectady to speak to them. They wanted to hear what he had to say about the bomb. Now that he was free to say what he pleased, Lilienthal accepted. The young scientists hired a movie theater. It was jammed the night when Lilienthal 
agreed to speak so freely, to gush. The audience was silent and thrilled and frightened and awed and hopeful. Lilienthal's opening statement, as I recall it, was this. First of all, let me say that I see no point in wallowing in misery. Then he told the scientists and their wives, their young wives, about all the wonderful benefits that peacetime uses of atomic energy were going to bring. He told about a ball bearing which was coated with radioactive isotope and then rolled down a trough thanks to atomic energy. Minute measurements of the wear and tear on both the ball bearing and the trough could be made. He told, too, about this Eggman who had a malignant throat tumor the size and shape of a summer squash. This man who was about to die was urged to drink an atomic cocktail. The tumor disappeared entirely in a matter of days. The Eggman died anyway, but Lilienthal and others like him found the experiment encouraging in the extreme. I've never seen a more depressed audience leaving a theater. The Diary of Anne Frank was a light-hearted comedy when compared with Lilienthal's performance for that particular audience on that particular night in that particular city where science was king. The young scientists and their young wives had learned something which most scientists now realize. That their bosses are not necessarily sensitive or moral or imaginative men. Ask Wernher, von Braun. His boss had him firing rockets at London. The old-fashioned scientist I described in Cat's Cradle was the product of a Great Depression and of World War II, and some other things, of course. The mood of technical people in World War II can be expressed in slogans such as, Can do! And the difficult, we do right away. The impossible takes a little longer. The Second World War was a war against pure evil. I mean that seriously. There was never any need to moralize. Nothing was too horrible to do in any, to any enemy that vile. This moral certainty and the heartlessness it encouraged did not necessarily subside when the war was won. Virtuous scientists, however, stopped saying, Can do. And then one more section here from Vonnegut that I like. This is an address he gave to a pen conference in Stockholm. Most writers I know all over the world do the best they can. They must. They have no choice in the matter. All artists are specialized cells in a single huge organism. Those cells have to behave as they do, just as the cells in our hearts or our fingertips have to behave as they do. We here are some of the most specialized cells. Our purpose is to make humanity aware of itself in all its complexity and to dream its dreams. We have no choice in the matter. And there is more to our situation than that. In privacy here, I think we can acknowledge to one another that we don't really write what we write. We don't write the best of what we write at any rate. The best of our stuff draws information and energy and wholeness from outside ourselves. Sculptors feel this more strongly than we do, incidentally. Every sculptor I ever knew 
felt that some spook had taken possession of his hands. Where do these external signals come from? I think they come from all the other specialized cells in the organism. Those other cells contribute to us energy and little bits of information in order that we may increase the organism's awareness of itself and dream its dreams. But if the entire organism thinks that we do and what we do is important, why aren't we more influential than we are? I am persuaded that we are tremendously influential, even though most national leaders, my own included, probably never heard of most of us here. Our influence is slow and subtle, and it is felt mainly by the young. They are hungry for myths, which resonate with the mysteries of their own times. We give them those myths. We will become influential when those who have listened to our myths have become influential. Those who rule us now are living in accordance with myths created for them by writers when they were young. It is perfectly clear that our rulers do not question those myths for even a minute during busy day after busy day. Let us pray that those terribly influential writers who created those our leaders were humane. Thank you. So myths and creating myths is part of the work of permaculture education, evolving a new cosmology, a new story for ourselves that connects us to our deep primordial past of evolution, our interrelationship intrinsically and separably to the entire web of life, to the whole story, and to recognize our piece of the story when we come onto the show, where we come from, our connectedness to the primate family tree to which we owe our heritage, and our pure biological intimacy with evolution and life on earth. And it's the recognition of this intimacy that I, as an educator, strive to awaken in all of my students, a sense of our relationship and our opportunity to enhance, heal, and create a better world for ourselves in the future. So now I'm going to share something from a book that's an environmental expose book. This one is called The Tainted Desert, Environmental and Social Ruin in the American West by Valerie L. Kuletz. Valerie is the daughter of a weapons scientist, grew up on a Department of Defense Research and Testing Center in the Mojave Desert. She is taught at the University of California in Santa Cruz and currently is lecturer in American Studies at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand. This book is a Rutledge Press publication, and I'm going to cut right to a section of a chapter We're on page 82. It is entitled, The Nuclear 
legacy. With the lethal longevity of 240,000 years, plutonium is one of the most deadly elements created by the splitting of the atom and nuclear reactors. It takes only 10 micrograms of plutonium to induce cancer and several grams of plutonium dispersed in a ventilation system can cause thousands of deaths. In light of this, global figures on the amount of plutonium we have generated since the 1940s are arresting and terrifying. By 1995, military weapons-grade plutonium in the form of active and dismantled bombs amounted to 270 metric tons. The commercial stockpile of plutonium in nuclear reactor waste and isolates from spent fuel amounts to approximately 930 metric tons and will more than double increasing to 2,130 tons by 2005. As the nuclear physicist Maha Kinjanji notes, every four or five years we're making about as much plutonium in the civil sector as we did during the whole Cold War. This figure does not include the waste from 80 radionuclides that are capable of releasing ionizing radiation which causes harm to humans and animals in the form of genetic mutations, cancer, and birth defects. By the celebrated end of the Cold War in 1989, the United States alone had generated 21,000 nuclear weapons. The planned reduction of nuclear warheads from 21,000 to 3,500 by the year 2003 will require the disassembly of 2,000 weapons a year for 13 years. Even if this task can be accomplished without accidents, disassembly will still produce a great deal of nuclear waste, added to the tons of nuclear waste generated by power plants in the past, present, and future and the 132 sites in 30 states where nuclear arms and production has left an environmental cleanup bill estimated at more than $500 billion. It is not an overreaction to say that we are in the midst of a national and global crisis. Indeed, the multi-billion dollar cleanup bill is itself misleading. Not all sites can be cleaned up Today, we do not have the technology to correct serious contamination areas such as, in the words of the DOE, large contaminated river systems like the Columbia, Clinch, and Savannah Rivers, most groundwater nuclear explosion test areas on the Nevada test site, and plutonium not now identified as surplus. Management, or the lack thereof, of the radioactive waste generated by the U.S. nuclear complex over the past 50 years has been nothing less than scandalous. With careless dumping of radioactive waste in pits and unlined trenches, as well as burials of the waste in cardboard boxes, and even intentional injection of it into deep wells, the contamination 
of the U.S. nuclear complex facilities and their surrounding areas, such as those at Rocky Flats, Colorado, Hanford, Washington, and Savannah River, South Carolina, has been well documented. Contamination of the soil and water at the Hanford facility indicates the severity of the problem, and Hanford is only one of 10 such Department of Energy facilities, as noted by one nuclear weapons complex watchdog group. Hanford stores 8,200,000 cubic feet of high-level waste and 500,000 cubic feet of transuranic plutonium-contaminated waste. Hanford buried 18 million cubic feet of low-level waste and 3,900,000 cubic feet of transuranic waste. By 1984, their reprocessing facility had discharged 210 billion gallons of radioactive waste into the groundwater. Yes, that's the right number of zeros. The N reactor, the plutonium production reactor, also discharged 1 billion gallons to the soil annually. Over 500,000 gallons of high-level radioactive waste have been leaked from storage tanks. Other wastes were intentionally released into the Columbia River, which flows through the site. So that's a crazy number. 500,000 gallons of high-level radioactive waste has been leaked from storage tanks. This is one site we're talking about. This is the Hanford site. The Hanford site had the dubious honor of being the place where they refined the uranium for the first two atomic bombs. Fat man and little boy. And that is part of why it is also so egregious in its contamination legacy due to the we just have to get this done, let's not pay attention to the long-term legacy we're creating here of a contamination situation that is untenable and cannot be remediated, not at that scope or scale. I'm going to read you a little more here from this book because this is such a powerful testament and a great author and an important topic that we don't pay attention to in this country, and we attempt to sweep it under the rug. And that is certainly not what I'm going to be doing here. I'm going to be pulling it out from under the rug and sharing it with you. This topic and this legacy is about nuclear waste and indigenous communities. Geographies of sacrifice are socially constructed spaces, and they are held different consequences for groups that are situated differently within late modern societies. Though everyone potentially feels the impact of the nuclear legacy, some gain wealth from it and some suffer its immediate consequences. Some have more power than others in their attempts to keep it at bay or at least to get recognition of their struggle. For example, the white middle-class property owners of Concord Naval Port in California confronted with the possibility of becoming a port for nuclear waste imported from 28 other countries. San Francisco Bay Area residents voiced their outrage during a DOE open hearing, which received television, radio, and newspaper coverage. 
social protest of this kind does not garner such publicity in more impoverished rural areas inhabited by less privileged people. Although protest does certainly occur in these areas, for instance, the plight of the uranium miners in New Mexico is rarely, if ever, heard outside local New Mexican and Indian newspapers. My own investigation into the claim of nuclear colonialism required familiarity with newspapers from Indian communities where the issue was not only identified but discussed on a regular basis. But other than in the Indian press and a handful of anti-nuclear publications, the idea of nuclear colonialism never comes up. When people say that nuclearism is the price we pay for freedom, they usually omit the fact that this price is paid by those with disproportionately less power. Though poor communities often pay the highest price, more privileged Americans are not exempt from some kind of payment. Indeed, Given that we are contemplating materials that transgress the social demarcations of borders and boundaries, it sometimes seems superfluous to talk about maps at all. Admittedly, there is irony in mapping a nuclear sacrifice zone when nuclear pollution tends to make boundaries obsolete. Even so, we have seen with the uranium mining district as well as the nuclear testing ranges identifiable zones of concentration of nuclear activity exist that are substantively different from other regions. Likewise, some regions and people are actively targeted for nuclear waste disposal. As Grace Thorpe, tribal judge and health commissioner for the Sox and Fox Nation of Oklahoma put it, the U.S. government targeted Native Americans for nuclear waste disposal for several reasons. Their lands are some of the most isolated in North America. They are some of the most impoverished and consequently most politically vulnerable. And perhaps most important, tribal sovereignty can be used to bypass state environmental laws. How ironic that after centuries attempting to destroy it, the U.S. government is suddenly interested in promoting Native American sovereignty just to dump its legal, lethal garbage and serve as hosts for the nation's nuclear garbage dump. The only two national potential deep geologic high-level and military waste sites in the United States are on or near traditional Indian lands. All recent proposals for temporary nuclear waste storage sites are for Indian reservations, and the nation's new premier low-level nuclear dump site also borders Native communities on traditional Native lands. The U.S. government has offered, through the office of the U.S. nuclear negotiator, often destitute Native communities substantial sums of money just to consider waste storage possibilities. Away has gone away. There is no place to put nuclear waste that makes any sense. We need to shut down nukes, phase them out, and eliminate this reliance on what is a toxic legacy upon toxic legacy. Colonialism with industrialism with nuclearism adds up to self-annihilation. We need to wake up 
and start producing more of what we need in ways that are equitable, ethical, and ecological. So I wanted to share with you, I'm pretty sure that I had the, I'm going to share with you a section here from a book I've been reading and shared some from before in these podcasts. This is from the, uh, the book entitled Potato. And I wanted to read to you a little bit about the history of one of the early scientists who really unveiled a lot of plant botany and plant genetics. He's a fascinating character and a fascinating quick history I wanted to share with you of him because of his historic significance and as an interesting example of the political dimension to plants, botany, and agriculture, and what gets developed by who, where, what precipitates famine, what are the things that we can do to avoid it, who really understands how to be developing varieties of plants that provide us with true food security. And definitely this man from Russia is one of the early important innovators of beginning to look to the heritage of plants. His name is Vavilov. And what Vavilov was famous for in the world of horticulture and agriculture was being one of the first people to say, hey, maybe all of the plants that we domesticated throughout world history, which you'll hear different figures there, could be 4,000, could be 7,000, it's a lot of plants, it's only about 53 species of animals, but about between four to 7,000 species of plants have been domesticated throughout the course of human history. And what Vavilov was one of the first scientists in the modern times to propose that perhaps to help with disease and pest and overall health issues that plants and animals are being plagued with, we should backbreed them and find where their origins of wild ancestry originated. And from that, perhaps re-imbue more modern breeds with some of the genetic vitality and vigor of their wild ancestors. They are called Vavilov centers of origin. And well, to some extent, they have been adjusted and reframed. The concept still has led us to a very useful route of analysis for understanding more about human beings, our relationship with plants, and the evolution of the domestication of plants, and how to develop a continually vitalized and evolving mode of agriculture. So a little history here, and we'll go through this history lens looking at this detail of Vavilov and the development of the potato and early disease resistance. Convinced now that true resistance could only be found outside the domestic varieties, Salomon obtained several other wild species, including S. demisum, a wild potato from Mexico, which also turned out to be the late blight resistant. In 1911, he began crossing S. demisum 
with domesticated stock with the ultimate aim of combining the desirable qualities of both in single varieties, fully blight-proof and marketable. By 1914, he had a series of such hybrid families, from which the most resistant individuals had crossed again with the immune stocks previously obtained. By 1926, Salomon reported with justifiable pride, quote, I was in possession of over a score of seedling varieties endowed with reasonably good economic characters which no matter what their maturity appeared to be immune to late blight. It was an important breakthrough, offering real promise after all the false starts that it was possible to breed blight-resistant potato varieties that would spare farmers the cost of spraying and lost crops. Meanwhile, a famine of proportions that surpassed even the tragedy of Ireland had struck the Soviet Union. But it was not the failure of the potato crop that was responsible. It was a sequence of events. The first, the first World War, the turmoil of the 1918 revolution, and its ensuing civil war, compounded by some drought and the willful determination of the Soviets to put the survival of their new political order before that of the people. More than 35 million Soviet citizens were at risk of famine by 1921, and their plight worsened as transport networks broke down and the government ordered that all available food supplies should be sent to the cities, leaving rural communities with little or nothing, even their seed grain was requisitioned. At least 5 million people died of starvation and disease as a result, many of whom would have survived if the Soviets had been willing to accept foreign aid from the moment it was first offered. They resisted for fear of foreign influence on political developments in the country, but ultimately had to concede. At its peak, the international aid program was feeding 10 million people. By then, the Soviet elite had admitted that their state could not survive on ideology alone. The economy was ruined, and its reconstruction required the expertise and knowledge of experienced engineers, scientists, industrialists, and managers. But most of the country's specialists had either emigrated or perished in the aftermath of the revolution, when higher learning was deemed to be a bourgeois threat. Many had been executed for various reasons. The few who survived suddenly found themselves in demand. Among them was an agricultural botanist, Nikolai Ivanovich Vavilov, 1887-1943. As a postgraduate student before the First World War, Vavilov had worked on disease-resistance plants. He had studied in England under William Bateson, and in Germany, under Ernst Haeckel, the biologist and enthusiastic proponent of evolutionary theory who, inter alia, had coined the term ecology. Vavilov was thus uniquely prepared to address the problem of revitalizing Russian agriculture. The acceptance of foreign relief had cleared the political atmosphere too, making it possible for Vavilov to visit the United States and Europe in search of fresh plant material, and keeping him in touch with advances 
in agricultural science, all of which doubtless contributed to the development of his theory on the centers of origin of cultivated plants. The concept of Vavilov's centers, as they became known, has been overtaken, though not entirely discredited, by subsequent work. But, in the context of the day, it opened new avenues of investigation, which in turn led to valuable advances in the field of plant breeding, especially in respect of the potato. The singular beauty of the Vavilov concept was that it was discovered at the tip of a pen, theoretically. Vavilov reasoned that since the range of cultivated plants known from acknowledged cradles of civilization, such as the valleys of the Nile, the Tigris and Euphrates and the Indus, the Ganges and the Yangtze, was very limited. Their ritual initial domestication had probably occurred elsewhere. The origins of agriculture would be found in more isolated regions, he said, from which cultivated crops had been adopted by the expanding populations of the Great Valleys only at a later stage. He proposed between 8 and 12 centers. The number increased with Vavilov's development of the idea. For the origin of the world's major food crops, located wherever the greatest genetic diversity of cultivated plants and their wild relatives was found, wheat in the highlands of the Fertile Crescent, rice in India, here Vavilov was wrong, Indonesia has the greatest genetic diversity of rice, maize in Mexico, brassicas around the Mediterranean, citrus fruits in China, walnuts in the Balkans, and potatoes in the Andes. But while Vavilov clearly enjoyed exploring the intellectual landscape of his pen-tip theory, it was the practical implications that concerned him most. In 1920, he was appointed head of the Bureau of Applied Botany, later renamed the Institute of Plant Industry, charged with the task of improving the Soviet Union's food crops. The famine in 1921 served to reinforce the importance and urgency of his brief. Like the gentlemen botanists of the Royal Horticultural Society more than a century before, Vavilov felt certain that the wild relatives of cultivated plants probably possessed useful elements of disease resistance, pest immunity, and environmental tolerance which had been lost in cultivated varieties. The search for varieties that would save Russia from the recurring catastrophes of drought and famine should begin with the primary elements, the bricks and mortar, from which the modern species and varieties were created, he said, rather than with the cultivars and hybrids that had been used hitherto. Expanding on this theme, he reasoned that unknown, useful genetic traits were likely to be found in the centers of origin he had proposed. Identifying them would call for the detailed examination of thousands of specimens from around the world. Breeding them into new improved varieties would require an extensive program of field trials. Vavilov's proposal called for a living collection of the world's cultivated plants and their wild relatives to be assembled at the Institute, and for the massive investment of money and manpower that would be needed to exploit the potential of that inventory. It was a revolutionary concept. These were revolutionary times, but even so, the scale of financial support Vavilov managed to secure from the hard-pressed Soviet treasury was staggering. 
That achievement alone earned him gasps of amazement and admiration and envy from colleagues in the West. But how had he done it? Guile. Vavilov is reputed to have explained when a British plant scientist posed the question at a diplomatic reception. Apparently, Vavilov had seen Leon Trotsky standing in a bread line during one of Russia's food shortages. The party elite often queued for bread, it seems, in order to show solidarity with the proletariat. Vavilov moved into the queue at Trotsky's shoulder, struck up a conversation, and as they shuffled forward to claim their rations, explained how his program of research and plant breeding could eliminate food shortages and bread queues forever. Trotsky was impressed enough to tell Lenin, Lenin was similarly impressed. Vavilov got his funding. Expeditions were arranged and dispatched to collect specimens from all parts of the Soviet Union and from 60 countries around the globe. Don't collect just a few speci- Don't collect just a few specimens, he instructed Dr. S. M. Bukasov as he prepared to set off for the Andean regions of South America. Collect as many as you can. Bukasov returned with thousands of specimens of numerous plants, including some previously unknown species of wild and cultivated potato. The Agricultural Research Institute that Vavilov created was one of the largest and most active in the world, with a network of 400 research and experimental stations across the length and breadth of the Soviet Union, and close links with related establishments worldwide. By 1934, 20,000 people were working under Vavilov's overall direction. In all, more than 300,000 plant samples were available for study. No one ever had such a mass of material and data on the global distribution of cultivated plants at their disposal. Applying it to the challenge of increasing the productivity of Russia's food crops was a relatively simple matter, but time-consuming. Satisfying the demands of his political masters was more difficult. With the benefits of hindsight, an ambitious and expensive research program based on the inherent diversity of living things was certain to fail under the onslaught of uniformity which the rise of Stalin imposed on all aspects of life in the Soviet Union. As the country's food production plummeted with the collectivization of agriculture, Vavilov was instructed to reduce the time needed to develop higher yielding and more resistant varieties from 12 to 5 years. His objections were counted by the claims of a rival, Trofim Denisovich Lysenko, who said he could do it in three years, with little more than five flower pots in the corner of a greenhouse. With a campaign of denigration in the support of Stalin, Lysenko ultimately appropriated all that Vavilov had achieved. He was more politician than scientist. When told that scientists in England had been unable to duplicate some of his results, he replied, I'm not surprised they live in a bourgeois environment. With such convictions, this son of illiterate peasants was able to ingratiate himself with the communist elite. They looked upon him as a true Soviet and a deserving product of the communist regime. Therefore, his science must be better than that of anyone from a bourgeois background. Nikolai Vavilov was arrested in August 1940 
and 11 months later found guilty of belonging to a rightist conspiracy of sabotaging Soviet agriculture and of spying for England. After a few minutes' deliberation, the court sentenced him to death. The sentence was later commuted to 10 years' imprisonment, but Vavilov had served little more than a year before he died in January 1943 at the age of 65, slandered, disgraced, tortured, and starved in the prison of the Russian city of Saratov on the Volga, center of the famine, which had been such a powerful incentive for his work. The facts of Vavilov's whereabouts and fate were withheld from his wife and family, his students and friends, as well as from the scientific community worldwide. Twenty years passed before the exact date of his death was disclosed, and many more years went by before the approximate location of his burial on the Saratov Cemetery was revealed. Almost 50 years passed before his son, Dr. Yuri N. Vavilov, obtained copies of the secret documents in which details of the scientists' arrest, imprisonment, and death were revealed. Vavilov's name was cleared in 1955. The institute he had founded was renamed the N.I. Vavilov Institute ten years later, and a large marble memorial was erected in the Saratov Cemetery. Lysenko died in his bed at the age of 78 in 1976. His political acumen such that he had managed to retain high-level support even as his promises of improved crops failed to materialize. But his science was entirely discredited. So some rich history there for you on a very important figure in plant, horticultural, and agricultural knowledge of the modern world, Vavilov. And I'd like to leave you with that today and say, let's continue to be curious and thoughtful and caring humans who look to create a higher quality of life for ourselves now by claiming our food security and energy independence in our homes, living more simply, more naturally, producing more of what we need for ourselves, and over time creating a world where people have comfortable, high-quality lives with a low level of effort and strain due to the fact that we have cultivated local landscapes that provide us with most of our daily goods. Enjoy your time on Earth.